Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. Hope you're all doing okay. Well, we're doing great here on the podcast. We're busy making plans for our 500th episode. I know, I know, we don't look a day over 400. Thank you very much. But we are, we're celebrating our 500th episode with a very special live event that's going to happen on Thursday, May 6th. So we want you to save the date for now and we're going to come back to you soon with all the details. We really hope as many of you as possible can be there to mark this day with us. Now, today I'm bringing you a conversation I had with British memoir writer and journalist Alexandra Hemmonsley. She's the author of Running Like a Girl and Leap In, two books that explored her relationship with fitness and her body. The first when she discovered the joy of running and then Leap In was about wild swimming. And all of the books were about encouraging others to take part in these fitness pursuits for pure pleasure, for the pure pleasure of the activity rather than any other goals. And in her latest book, Some Body to Love, she explores a sequence of extreme life experiences that happened in quick succession. And I'm going to read you just the first paragraph of one of the reviews of Somebody to Love because it puts it very well. And this review said, if a Hollywood writing room had come up with a storyline where a woman approaching 40 finally finds herself pregnant after years of IVF treatment, only to be told by a genetic screening test that the baby isn't genetically hers. And then in the last stages of pregnancy is assaulted on a commuter train gives birth by emergency caesarean, then brings her new baby home only to realise that her husband of the past four years is now ready to transition into a woman. The viewer might think that the story was trying too hard to express the zeitgeist, but this is the story that Alexandra Hemmonsley recounts in her staggering memoir, Somebody to Love. And it really is a staggering memoir and all of it is explored by Alexandra in the book, which at its heart is an exploration of what it means to have a human body, to feel connected or separated from it and how we might learn to accept our own. I really think our conversation is going to give you a lot to think about as she talks about her new life in an LGBTQ plus family and how that life and all that led to it has shaped her as a woman and as a mother. Here she is, Alexandra Hemmonsley. Alexandra, you're a memoirist. You write about your life. So the hope is that things happen in your life. (laughs) And since we last spoke, since you wrote your book Leap In, quite a lot has happened to you, particularly three very intense human experiences in quick succession. So I'm going to ask you to outline those for us because they really did make for gripping reading in your book, your new book, which is the brilliantly titled Somebody to Love. Yes, thank you. I think I'm an incidental memoirist. When I finished Leap In, I really, I finished Leap In not knowing if I could 
get pregnant and feeling quite resigned to that. I'd sort of made my peace with it during the writing of the book. And um, and I just, yeah, I thought, great, well, my life is easy and average now. I can go and write some novels. <laughs> and then what happened was, yeah, I had three quite intense life experiences, which... Um, which were all interesting to me in t- on their own terms, but also in um, in relation to each other and in relation to the writing I'd already done about women and my relationship with my body and how we connect to our bodies and our senses of our sense of self. Um, the first was that when I was only a very few weeks pregnant, um, I knew that because I was uh, older, I was forty. I knew that probably if I just had the standard NHS test, it would probably come up and say I was at risk. It's just a blood test, that one. And I'd probably be sent for an amnio. And also Leap In was coming up towards publication and people were starting to say, oh, maybe you could have your publicity photographs in a freezing cold river and maybe you could do like this stunt swim. And I was in that perilous bit when you're too scared to tell people you're pregnant, but you're too scared to get into a freezing cold river. So I paid privately to have a test called the Harmony Test. And they they made a mistake with the results and came back and casually told me that it looked as if um, the baby, the embryo wasn't mine. We shared no DNA were the terms that they used. Um, and it was an IVF pregnancy. So I, I mean, obviously, if it was a natural pregnancy, I would have just discounted it and said, you've made a lab mistake. But um There was a a long wait of several weeks during which I had to go and have uh, a dangerous test, very much like an amniocentesis. And, um, and there were, you know, it was like a sort of science fiction, like a Margaret Atwood type setup, because it could have been an entirely different embryo from some random shelf at the clinic. It could have been that they'd made an embryo with my then partner's, um, sperm and someone else's egg or it could have been something else entirely like um, there was a few chromosome disorders Um, there's something called mosaicism where you can sort of effectively have two strands of DNA in one person Um, that was a very rudimentary (laughs) description Um, so there was something incredibly distancing about the early weeks of my pregnancy because I didn't know that it was mine. I didn't know whose it was. I felt very protective of the embryo and of myself. I knew it was our last embryo, so it was our only chance. And also, there's something very specific about IVF in general, which brings up a lot of feelings about whether you're a real woman, whether you're a natural woman. And there was definitely a part of me that was thinking, well, you meddled and look where it got you, kind of, you think you know best and, you know, the system, you know, bodies know best. And it was very hard to quiet that voice when absolutely everything was up for grabs. You know, lawyers were using words like um, unprecedented or no no legal precedent in this country and things like that. It has ha- actually happened in Czechoslovakia, in the Czech Republic, sorry, where two two couples got each other's embryos and had to legally adopt their own babies back afterwards. But we just didn't know what was happening for weeks. In the end, it was just a lab mistake. It was completely our baby. And, you know, he's four in a couple of weeks and is very visibly our baby. But at the time, it was absolutely bewildering. 
then when I was much later in the pregnancy, only about a month before um, having him, I was assaulted on a train. Someone grabbed me, grabbed my um, behind. And um, when I shouted at him and told him to stop, he was incredibly drunk and I was incredibly pregnant. And it just seemed, I think I was just very, very protective of my bump. It was on a moving train and I was just very scared of being knocked. I wasn't it almost didn't register as sexual assault until a bit later. Um, And then when I moved carriages, his friends came in and sort of blocked me into the carriage and told me I was a liar. And again, it was this sense of other people telling me that things were happening to my body or hadn't happened to my body, which seemed very clear to me what had happened and and just this idea that so so many external agents were having input in my body (laughs) um and that ended up being a court case um in which the guy was uh, even though there was a witness and there was cctv um that the he he was found not guilty um which again kind of perpetuated this idea that what was left was right and what was white was black just on on the not guilty verdict i mean i think it's worth saying that despite the fact that you had an independent witness who had seen everything and the fact that um you know he had admitted to having 10 pints 10 gins two bottles of wine his version was seen to be more credible than yours and the fact that you were pregnant was was used as a way to sort of say that your recollection might not be quite right or that yeah. your experience the magistrate said i must have been it, it should have been taken into account that i must have been feeling quite emotional um so yeah it was it was really unnerving um and then when my son was about 6 or 7 months old um my then husband which is a word i use with permission um, told me that she had to transition, um, which was something that, uh, I think, I think I had seen coming on some level, but because these other things had been happening, had been making me doubt my own mind and my own body and what a body even was, uh, um, became part of this huge tangle. Um, and, uh, it, it was a really, really painful time. And I'm glad that I've put into the book the parts of me that were livid <laughs> and hurt and sad. Um, but the reason that I wrote the book was because I don't think I could have come to the conclusions that I did without those three things happening together and bouncing off each other. They all really informed the way that I live my life now in a really positive way. I mean, I I split up with my ex, but she is a massive part of the family. We see each other, you know, five times a week, if not more. We completely actively co-parent. And also it felt, especially to my parents and some of my friends, that, that like this period was going to completely break me. But I sincerely believe that it was the making of me. It showed me Um, so much about myself and about people and different perspectives and resilience and I mean kindness is a a little bit of a dog-eared word now (laughs) it's a a bit of a kind of catch-all but it did and it 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 really it really really stretched me and I had to I had to um, really think through and make sure I knew or, or that I was sure that what I felt was what I felt and what I thought was what I thought 
And part of that was the process of writing the book. I was really lucky I had a fantastic editor. But also part of it was kind of the inextricable way that those three experiences happened so fast, but with so much correlation that they really kind of, in a way, <laughs> she says laughingly four years later, they stood me in good stead. Alexandra, um, because some people will be listening now and you've just said something quite huge that a lot of people will be trying to get their heads around. So if you don't mind, could we go back a little bit yeah. and talk about your your relationship and this journey to your then husband's transition to being a woman? Um, in the book, you call her D and your yes. your son is L. So just yes. for, for clarity, tell me about um, your relationship with D. you know, before all of this. Um, because we, it was kind of, you were a bit of an unconventional couple, you know, from the beginning, in a way. Yeah, I mean, not wildly. I mean, you know, it wasn't like we were kind of <laughs> Bauhaus eccentrics, <laughs> just living in Hove. Um, but I I didn't set much store by kind of particularly traditional notions of gender. I It didn't really bother me that Dee was you know, someone who would dress kind of androgynously. But even, you know, even this is like five, six years ago, notions of dressing androgynously have already moved quite a lot. They're just how a lot of people just, a lot of people dress these days. I think it, it time, time has passed and we've sort of almost caught ourselves up with some of the thinking. But, you know, I definitely grew up not wanting to go and be a housewife and I and, and I didn't I really wanted to have a child I mean leap in is massively about longing to have a child but I also didn't think that it would be the be all and end all and that was something I'd really wrestled with was was this idea of other people telling me or implying or just society at large presenting me with this idea that womanhood was motherhood I never thought that and so it wasn't as if I'd married you know uh a rugby player who was, you know, uh, a woodsman or something. I, I was. I, I, it was a marriage I'd gone into with a with a level of flexibility, which which I think was why it took a while to kind of unravel as much as it did. Your then husband wore D wore nail varnish, for example, or you know the androgynous clothing, and but and it had come up before in conversation whether this transitioning or that kind of thing was something that they might want to do in the future and and they'd said no. Yeah, yes, definitely. And and again, that's something which um I know like people who were protective of me at the time felt very angry about. And I'm I'm reluctant to talk too much about D because it's not her book and it, it, she she is allowed to have her own life. Um but yeah, I think people when they hear that feel like and I did. I'm not. I, I definitely did feel at times like you lied. You lied. But this is to me the crux of the book. And the interesting thing now is that I have so much clarity, having seen the lives that trans people live and what um, torment that coming out, especially coming out at the moment in the UK, can be. I can quite see why you would try absolutely every avenue available to you up to and including lying to yourself again and again and again and again and trying to love harder and be um, better and all of those things before confronting the fact that you were trans. It wasn't 
that she was sort of swishing around every time I left the house, thinking, ha-ha, another day, and I fooled her. I think, I mean, I can't know ever exactly what somebody thinks, but I feel like it was a very difficult time for her of like, please, if I say it, can I not have those occasional thoughts rather than something more mendacious? Well, reading the book, it feels very clear that it was having your son together um, that seemed to really be a catalyst for for her being able to really fully understand who she was. But like you say, that's her story. So I'm not asking you to, to, to read her mind like that. But let's talk about your experience when you had your son. That's when you started to notice things were changing and a, and a sort of sadness crept into your marriage. You, you have a lovely description where you say there was something curdling in it and you couldn't quite put your finger on yeah. it. But tell us about that. I think there's been a lot of negative press in the UK about trans lives generally. And there's also a tendency on the internet to pick up on one or two sentences in the book about me, things I've admitted to at my most unhappy, which I'm proud of because I think, and actually people have thanked me now that the book's been out because it's important to admit to the pain that you went through because it's so much pressure on other families of trans people or other trans people if all you present is... And then we just got some rainbow scatter cushions and everything was fine because it was a process. It was a really painful, active process that we all had to engage in and commit to to have a family that could function. Um, so, but... There's been picking of a couple of lines in the book and sort of then spinning them out and reimagining things which aren't in the book. So I, what I talk about is a sense that once our son was born, I felt possessive. I felt jealous. I'd come, you know, I'd had a, a difficult birth. I ended up having to have a C-section. It, I was still on some level shocked after the assault, um, and I just sort of I. I I just thought everything would be perfect. I'd got what I wanted. I had a baby and I had, you know, Leapin had just come out and had the reviews of my career and but it wasn't and I felt I I I really struggled to connect with the baby. I felt um and obviously, I mean there's <laughs> no shortage of reasons why by this point, but I felt jealous and I felt when I looked at the baby with my ex, I felt like um and I, d- I don't even think she was, but I felt like, are you pretending to be me? Are you taking my place? And you can never know the line of at what point I knew what was going on and that was what I saw. And at what point I was an overexhausted um, new mother who'd had an operation and a really traumatic time already and was just thinking the meanest thing she could think. Um, or at what point was doing that that you know that that it is not for the internet or me or d or anybody to ever know the exact lines there but i really felt i felt left out when i thought i would feel at my most powerful and part that's also society like the mother stand back there's a mother here let the mother sit down and i kind of wanted the world to stop for me i felt it was my due um and so um that was a that it felt like the kind of high pressure of a storm incoming and and i and i i don't know this but what it looked like to me ultimately was that d felt she she couldn't perpetuate a sense of self she wasn't truly 
um, that she wasn't truly, I suppose, <laughs> to another generation. I think it was the thought of having a child and lying to that child that was rather than um, anything else. And also I'm, I'm really proud that we got to have that conversation. I, I, my love and our closeness as people, if not man and wife, was what ultimately allowed Dee the space to admit it. I just, I started to dig and ask um, until I got there, I suppose. And and that's, it. there wasn't, I think people wanted, and my, even there was a point with my editor, she was like, but when did you know? And people want that kind of just before the news at the nine o'clock drama, part two's on tomorrow moment of a revelation. But life isn't like that. It's, you know, any anybody who's gay or, or slightly fallen out of love with somebody or had the funny feeling that perhaps they're in the wrong job or all sorts, they're very rarely these magical moments of clarity that sound good on the radio. It's, uh, it, it was a sort of creeping sense that, I kept digging away at um rather you know there was no drama to it and yeah I'm I'm proud that we we got there to have the conversation in time to rebuild like my son speaks and chats now and we we can talk to him about things and I'm really 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 so pleased that he didn't have to experience it when he was verbal or when he didn't sleep for half the day and things like that yeah, but I mean, just to say, like, you, I know there was no big revelation, no big moment. But for example, you write in the book that you started to notice she was wearing foundation. Uh, your ex was wearing foundation or was um, shaving their legs or was um, plucking eyebrows. So there was little sort of, I suppose, not to say clues, but it was a gradual realisation until that moment you describe at the beginning of the book where you're sitting with your pram and you sort of, it, 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 there's a realisation comes in you that you know, that, that your partner's going to have to... Yeah, there was like a point where I was like, we have to have the conversation. We really, uh, like, we have to have the conversation. But this is the thing. Shaving your legs doesn't make you trans. You know, I'd sit there and think of all the times I'd seen the completely hairless male bodies on Love Island where these people are being held up as absolute um, perfection idols of masculinity and they're like injection molded plastic half the time and and you know men wear in, with increasing degrees foundation bb cream sunblock all of that stuff it was like for each thing there was a sort of a whole load of reasons and and i don't think my, i don't think that somebody who's might be listening to this now who who is a bloke who just prefers their legs shaved for whatever reason should, go, should then go into a spiral of, oh my God, my, my wife's going to think I'm trans. Am I trans? Am I? None, it's none of those things. It's, it, it, they, those aren't making you trans. Well, I totally relate to what you're saying, Alexandra, because at one point you say in the book that um, your ex-partner, you never cleaned your kitchen because your ex-partner cleans the kitchen all the time, right? But I have my heterosexual white cis um, partner... <laughs> I don't clean my kitchen either. He's into housework in a way yeah. that I just am not And I, I think it's really important not to attribute sort of stereotypical notions of femininity or masculinity to meaning that you're trans, because then you're kind of, you're reinforcing everything. Usually, in my experience, and I'm not trans, 
those sorts of things are things that people are doing to express rather than yeah you you know I I know what you mean and I think it's really it's a really good point but when I when I brought those things up it wasn't to sort of say that's how you knew it was more to to look at your kind of gradual realisation that this conversation needed to happen. So that's where I was bringing them up. And I think I'm really glad you've made that point. But I I suppose I just want to go back into your experience. There was something not right. This whole happy ever after that you had imagined when you had your son Mm. was turning out to be something completely else. And there were little signifiers of that, of why that was. And and, and then you had this conversation. Can you tell us about that, about that that? moment when you you confronted your ex-partner about this I think what what's also really important to discuss is that I had my son in 2017 which was I think the most intent I don't know how it was in Ireland but it seems to be in the states and here as well the sort of high point of Instagram mum world and you know western society fetishizes motherhood a lot anyway and it's even more extreme once the kind of monetization of Instagram and the beautifying way that the sort of you could post and present yourself and your perfections. And that is an extremely stereotypical universe as well. I mean, there are representations of different kinds of families if you know you're in a trans family. But if you, you know, you open a baby book or go on a blog and they will all say, you know, husbands can be jealous and, you know, it's good to give him time with the baby because they they need to bond to just use the time for a nap and, oh, don't, you know, sort of, there was a sort of general sense of don't necessarily trust all your judgment, you haven't had enough sleep. So it wasn't that I was like, fil- you know, truffling around the house looking for clues. It's just that that is, it's a really disorientating time anyway but it's also an extremely hyper male, hyper female kind of world. And and at that time, it wasn't just baby books. It was also, you know, you know, the, the internet is so evil. Once you've bought a clear blue test with a Boots Advantage card, YouTube, Instagram, they all know that you're trying for a baby. So you suddenly get fed mum everything. And if I had my time again, and I, and if anybody is struggling with fertility, I would definitely recommend whatever you do, try to clear cookies wherever possible. Because it was so painful having IVF once the internet knows, because they know so fast. And um, so it was, it wasn't just that there was like a trans disorientation kind of happening in the, in the family home. I, I found the language around, just as a feminist, the language around motherhood quite stifling anyway. Um, but yes, we did, we did have, we then we, I ended up having this conversation. And I think that the, the point where, for me, where the penny dropped was I was saying, oh, you don't need to change all these things about yourself. We love you. And she said, I'm not changing things about myself. It's this is who I am. I'm just trying to be it externally. And that was sort of, I think that was where um, the trans, I don't know, conundrum isn't, the dilemma, I suppose, is that what you're not trying to do is change yourself. What you're trying to do is realign your outside with your inside. 
tell me about that moment, Alexandra. Um, and I suppose, you know, you had a certain future in mind for yourself and your partner. And, and as a family, you had all these memories of yourself and you talk very beautifully about it. And I do think it's important that you express that sorrow and grief because it was real. And it's not something like you say to get some rainbow scatter cushions <laughs> and it's all going to go away. But talk to me a little bit about that, uh, I suppose, that sadness and grief and and coming through that. There was massive sadness and massive grief and massive panic. You know, I had a six-month-old baby and not only was there was one sort of half of my brain on a train track of sort of single motherhood, was Dee going to leave and will we never see her again? And would she just not want to be tethered to a family if she was going to go off and become this amazing, wonderful person? But there was also this sort of train track of like, I'm going to be, I'm now my, I felt like I'd fallen through a trapdoor because I realised that for the rest of my life, I would be preparing and advocating for my son who's in an LGBT family. I might not be LGBT, but plus, but um, he is in that kind of a family and he always will be. And from that day forward, every time we were at, you know, baby music, and there was like talk of your mummy and your daddy or all those classes and the hyper normality and heteronormativity that's there. And, you know, I had to, he, he was just about to start doing like one or two days at nursery a week and I had to go in. I didn't have to, but I felt I had to and explain the situation um, so that, you know, I've I've wanted from that day onwards for my son to be reading diverse books about different kinds of families and and, you know, I I realised that this was a path that I was now on forever, basically. That And and at that point, I was terrified and panicked. And now I kind of think it's wonderful because there are there have been already difficult moments where he's been a little bit confused or a little bit, like, worried about things. And But we've talked to him about them and stuff. But also, he's going to have a more open perspective on life and understand um, a lot more about all the types of humans that can be. Because also, once you've sort of um, fallen through this trapdoor into another world where you've experienced discrimination and prejudice and, um, and just people who don't think, people who assume that because I'm like, a white cis smiley blonde lady that my that I must kind of live a totally in their eyes normal life it really informed my um thinking when all the black lives matter stuff happened last year um it it made me um I say I mean it wasn't really about making me feel confident but it made I, I felt much more in, emboldened to engage and discuss and to listen and to realise that I might have an, assumptions that were absolutely nonsense because I'd already sort of been through that process already around gender. I was perfectly prepared to kind of accept that I would on some level be thinking things which were based on stuff I'd picked up when I was a five-year-old. Um, and that, I think, is a gift. It was a gift and it's, I think it's, I hope it's made me a better ally because it's, I've wasted less time going, but I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist. I can't, no, there will be things I've thought and done that are on some level racist, the same as I've had a whole load of untangling around gender to do. But can we go back there a little bit as well, just to that loss and grief, if you don't mind? 
But I'm interested in the fact that, you know, you're, that, that confusion about where your life was going to go now. Was there ever a, a sense that you were going to stay as a couple that perhaps now uh, this might be a bit strange question, but uh, your ex-partner was now going to transition to be a woman. So that would have meant if you'd stayed together, you I suppose you'd be in a lesbian relationship, but that was never going to be part of it. You wanted to be in a relationship with a man at, at the time. Yeah, this is where some people <laughs> some people take issue with my position because I'm not lesbian and I'm pretty comfortable with that. I'm it's not like, you know, I am I've learned enough about how your life can change in half an hour to know that my dream woman might yet walk through the door and I might suddenly have to do a whole new book and a whole new load of radio shows saying, I'm so sorry, I've had to rethink it again. I know enough about how <laughs> unexpected life is. Having said that, I've I've never felt like I was lesbian and um it seemed pretty obvious to me that I would be I would have to be lesbian to stay in the marriage. Um in my mind, and and I understand that this is not how everyone would see it, they there could be two people who looked exactly the same sitting next to me on the sofa. Whatever presentation, female, male, somewhere in between, whatever. And one would perceive themselves to be a woman and be a woman. Um, And that wouldn't be who I would want to be married to. Um, But there could also be someone who looked just the same, who was super confident in their masculinity and just wanted to dress like this today and was like using male pronouns, totally chill, you know, what's your deal, blah, 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 who I potentially could be absolutely fine about being married to. Um, And that in itself taught me quite a lot about how gender is more than appearance, that one was attractive to me and one wasn't. And so, yeah, and and Dee was a woman, and and I now have no conceptual issue with the fact that Dee has always been a woman. Um, And so, yeah, we didn't stay together. But we we didn't want to split up, really, I knew we had to, but it was done quite slowly. And it was all, we did it all around our son, whatever we could handle to kind of make it safe and manageable around that. And we're good friends. I want to come back later on to sort of what you alluded to earlier was that, um, we, which everyone has kind of knows a bit about the sort of very toxic debate around trans issue that's happening particularly in the UK and it's sort of spilling over here but there's another thread to the book which is really interesting and I think we should talk about too was about your relationship to your own body you'd written these two books yeah you'd written um a book about running running like a girl and you'd written leap in about your uh, love of getting back into the water and into swimming and you know loving your body through that but through all the um really extreme things that happened to you the sexual assault the c-section the IVF treatment and all of those things you'd come out the other side with a son but really with a very different body as well to the one that you'd kind of started to cherish and love through all those other activities and I thought that was a really interesting and again correlated to the to the trans issue in a way uh, part of the book T- mm. tell me about that time you'd put on a lot of weight you weren't feeling like yourself it felt like your body was a stranger to you how did you move through that part of of the of your story yeah because also you know also what was worth bearing in mind was that was through running like a girl and leap in I'd spent a lot of time talking about how women should be allowed to present and feel as masculine as they wanted to that we shouldn't all be wearing tiny pink 
cycling shorts to the gym and, you know, using tiny little weights and bending over provocative. We should be allowed to kind of grunt and get sweaty and have giant chunky muscular thighs if we wanted. And that that wasn't going to make us less female or feminine. Um, And so that had informed my thinking already. But I think at the time, um, I felt like I'd had my wings clipped. Obviously, having a new baby does that to some degree anyway, because there's someone who needs you around you the whole time. But also, um, the the I had something called a bicornet uterus, which is when um, your uterus is sort of shaped like a heart. So the baby was wedged into only one side of the of my uterus. So I, I was carrying him very lopsided anyway. Um, which gave me a lot of pelvis pain. And then I had a C-section. So I found swimming in the sea very scary because I just didn't have that core strength. And I found the running very difficult because my pelvis wasn't balanced. And so these things which I had enjoyed for my mental space, as much as any sense of health or fitness, um, were taken from me. And that was the most important thing for me. But I didn't realise it at the time. At the time, I just felt like, incredibly distant from my body I felt like it was and and this again is something that I now see reflected very much in trans lives which is I just felt like my body was like a a talking point or a column or a, a debate something that people who weren't invested with it could debate whether it was good enough or thin enough or and it was almost like I was just walking around like a brain in a jar who'd just completely moved and I don't think that's completely unusual especially people who've gone through traumatic things um and it took a long time to feel like I had got back into my body and that was it was a it was a combination of things I mean really basic stuff like my son started to sleep and I got more sleep and all of that and um I went away I'm writing a novel I've written a novel that's set largely in Norway and I went there with my brother on a trip that was really transformative um, because it's a sort of that Scandinavian way of just like, they'd say, oh no, it's, it's just a couple of hours walk, you'll be fine. And then it was just like a terrifying hike up the side of a mountain. Um, and I really had to use my body to get from A to B in a way that I hadn't done for a really long time. It became no longer that feeling of just something to write a column about or other people to have a debate about. And it became the thing that I needed to get to the top of the mountain because I wanted to see the view of the beach. (laughs) And I remembered that we are functional and um, as well as sort of these hypothetical beings. And that was a really connecting point. And that gave me the confidence then to start doing some sort of lifting and weights and stuff. To get, and you have, Alexander, some interesting thoughts on body positivity movement through that, which you, you found troubling or a bit difficult for you because, like I said, your body felt like a stranger, but you were being encouraged to completely embrace and love it, but it, you didn't feel that way. Well, I think the thing with the body positivity, you know, it, it comes out of, you know, 1960s liberation in the States and was quite quite radical, but then it, then it met Instagram And it seemed to me a lot of the time that to be body positive, you had to take loads and loads of photos of yourself in your pants and put them on the internet. That that was the only means available in the 20 teens or whatever we were in then, 2020s, 
to be or express any sense of body positivity. And I was like, can't I just, why? I, I was, I, there came a point where I was just like, can I just use it? Can I, do my legs have to be chunky or thin or muscly or male or fe- masculine, fe- feminine, masculine? Um, or can they just be how I walk to the shops? And can I feel okay about my body if I'm not constantly posting pictures of it? Does it? Am I letting the side down if I'm not telling everyone I feel great again? And And I found that very difficult to navigate because it was like, A lot of the time, body positivity felt to me like Mark Zuckerberg had just found a new way to get women to show their cleavage on the internet. And that was very, very tedious at the time. It was like, I just, you know, I just want, I was so busy wiping formula off nappies and, you know, all that kind of thing. I just was like, oh, God. I didn't want any of it. It was exhausting. And I was kind of looking in all these places to find solace because it's such a lonely place. There's there's not much in the way of resources that are humane when you're in the position I was in. You know, Chris Jenner is not someone who we all think about as like immediately a a relatable person (laughs) when that's the only person that can kind of come to mind. You know, I didn't have millions of lawyers or Vanity Fair covers or my own TV show to navigate this through. And so, you know, I'd look online and try and find things to help me or to make me feel a bit less alone. And I must say Instagram was um, of mixed usefulness. (laughs) Um, there's a great quote, and I think just given to what you said, where you say, do I have to start loving my body now, no matter what? And if I, an able-bodied white middle class woman, was feeling overwhelmed by this, what must it feel like for other bodies? A woman assigned male at birth who for a lifetime has received nothing but daily, hourly, endless messages about what form it is acceptable to live a woman's life in. No wonder it might take you 40 years to articulate your true self. Yeah, that was a beautiful sort of uh, realisation for you and insight that leads to greater understanding that you describe. As I'd like to talk to you about that now, um, I actually like to read another bit of the book because this, I think, is one of the most important um, quotes into it. And we're talking about how your, your, your family is now. So you say a few months into our new family format, I was as sure as I ever had been that there were many possibly infinite ways to be a woman and that they should always include trans women. Yes, I was still stumbling over pronouns and riding out my own waves of rage and grief. But if we are to tell our sisters that they may and should present themselves in whatever way makes them feel comfortable, we cannot then discriminate against those trans women who may have shoulders too broad or jaws too square to make us personally feel comfortable. It made no sense to me when I read women calling themselves gender critical feminists saying that female-born women should be allowed to be as butch as they like without fear of erasure or pressure to transition, but also saying only a breath later that trans women were grotesque parodies of women. Surely we either broaden the definition of womanhood in both directions or we stay in the dark ages. I I really think that's an incredible thing that you (laughs) wrote there because to me it puts in a nutshell a lot of what is being talked about at the moment. Tell me about your own perception of the debate in England around trans people. It, it, sort of going back to that quote that from the book. Yeah, I mean, I've, I just, I still can't quite get my head around the 
this sort of policing of um, what is what is woman, because it it just seems um, well. There's two things about it that seem really clear once you really start to read about it. Is that um, the idea of transness that we have uh, in, in sort of Western Europe? It, it is very Western European, um, kind of post-colonial, like. The, the sort of notions of gender on a global scale and on a historical st- scale have fluctuated and embraced so much over so many thousands of years that to try and pin it down now seems um see i don't know it just seems like a fool's fool's game um and also that that sort of it, it, even biologically it's sort of fluctuated over time you know we first it was like can she have a baby you know you were like Anne Boleyn desperate to produce a son and no idea why you couldn't or wouldn't or whatever and then it was sort of you know there was better understanding of sort of sexual organs and then it was chromosomes and then it was hormone levels it's like we're going to keep discovering and keep and humans are so unreliable anyway and obviously I understand you know all the things that kind of Caroline Criado Perez writes about all the infuriating anger making things about um every car seat or drug dose being you know I think it was it's a 35 year old man that's sort of deemed to be the average body. Obviously, I understand that. But I also feel like it isn't, I'm not convinced it's the job of a small handful of columnists and people on Twitter to either make those decisions and definitions or to lead the government to do that. And I think that the thinking around it is, I just, I just find it sort of mad that you can try and pin these things down um, with such, such a narrow perspective. And I also think, and I'm including that myself, that humans are. Human bodies are totally unreliable. I know that. Mine's thrown up all sorts of surprises. Um, and human our understanding of humans is, is going to carry on evolving for another few centuries and millennia, just as much as it already has. So to just be trying to look at looking at, I don't know, like post-war society, it's not enough. It's not enough to cause so much pain to this small minority of people. Mm-hmm. So there's conversations going on at the moment, particularly in England, but it's sort of uh, infiltrating a bit here um, where, you know, you, you have uh, you know, people objecting to expressions like people with cervix or using people instead of women and even people who maybe never have got involved in any of these kind of things are suddenly kind of being you know there's a there's a sense that oh why are why are women being erased and all of that kind of thing which I know you're very familiar with Um, and there's issues around uh, whether it's sporting competitions or you know gender neutral bathrooms or prisons and puberty blockers and all of those things are swirling around I suppose what I wanted to ask you about is you have I think a lot of this and a lot of it is coming from a place of fear or just lack of knowledge I mean a lot of people have never spoken to a trans person they certainly don't a lot of people Mm. don't have close relationships with one and I think your experience allows you to take up a space that's kind of quite interesting particularly that you're such a good communicator what I'd like what I'm asking you I suppose is how your experience has informed that in you you're always quite a liberal person but what would you like to say to people who maybe do have those fears or concerns or who are listening to all this stuff and and don't know what to think I suppose 
Yeah, and and I I really really understand why you would panic if you thought you had to start while you were already trying to work out what to pack in your baby bag and whether you wanted an elective C-section and whether your husband was still going to fancy you after you had a baby and where you were going to put the cot when he reached six months and all of those things. If you suddenly felt like you were going to have to start saying chest feeding instead of breastfeeding, that I understand why that would send you into a panic. The reality is, and I'm using a really specific example because it's... Um, a good example of what happens repeatedly in the UK media. That was something that happened here in the Sussex Hospital in Brighton, where I live, which um, I know people who work at because a lot of my swimming friends, because freelancers and medics often have strange times of the day when they're free to swim. Um, (laughs) So I know a lot of people who work in that department and they So I knew they were really proud of the work they'd done then around trans men having babies, which they do and will always do and will continue to do. And they'd sort of issued some stuff around words and language that would be inclusive. They weren't. They very specifically weren't. And it said repeatedly in the document, weren't obliterating chest feeding or woman or any of those words. And I mean, it really did have a paragraph in the the press release saying we're really um, sensitive to people wanting to use those words. Obviously, the vast majority of women will. Um, It was additive language. It was this is to stop you as a midwife getting into a spin and not knowing what to say when you're on hour 11 of your shift. Here's a piece of paper to help you and help everybody to be inclusive. But there are a handful of people and websites and newspapers in this country who are very committed to finding those examples and getting that first news story in. So if something is, for example, in the Times, that will then be picked up by, for example, LBC and, for example, politicians I'm using with very wafty air quotes there, like Lawrence Fox. And then... Within 45 minutes, you've got hours worth of airtime and rage and the people who are losing out there, the people who are are winning in that position are people who have worked out and tethered their careers to hate and anger. They've worked out that tweets beget tweets, beget well-paid slots on chat shows, beget um, Patreons which can pay your mortgage. And the only people who lose in situations like that are the women who are panicked two days before they're going into hospital about whether they're going to say the wrong thing when they're they're anticipating being in pain or being lonely or being scared already. Or the hospital who had tried to do and had done a really good thing and trans people who would be terrified to go to hospital. Um, And it's become so little to do with trans people or trans lives and so much to do with specifically Twitter, which operates um, in a way that enables people to have very well-paid careers out of this kind of um, fake rage. Um, And it's just exhausting. And I I know I'm not on Twitter anymore because I think the algorithm knew me too well. It just served me everything that would upset me. And I I knew that I don't I don't think I could ever have undone that. The only way to exist was to not be there. Um, But I, you know, that, that stuff filters through into the headlines now. And 
you know, I don't think I'm saying anything contentious on, or unusual because I think people know. I mean, it was, it was being done five years ago around Brexit stuff. You know, people like Katie Hopkins over, over here and even Nigel Farage, he, he kind of manifested Brexit by this kind of stoking. And it's just, it's so little to do with trans lives, but has ultimately such a huge effect. Lawrence Fox tweeting about trans people Nothing will convince me that he ever cared on any level about that kind of thing or in, you know, at all until he saw it as a way to get retweets and attention for a campaign. But Alexandra, I want to bring it back to to sort of people listening to this, though, um, you know, who all this stuff is swirling around and they're kind of thinking, oh, should I have a an opinion on this? Should I be thinking about this? Is this yeah. something I should be worried about? You know, I think that's the like you said, yeah. the people who lose out. So what I'd love you to do is talk a bit from your experience of now being in this very, I suppose, I suppose it's unique. It's not unique. It's not unique, but it's a different kind of family than the one you envisage, say. What yeah. that experience is, it is and what you'd like people to understand about it, that, that perhaps I've never encountered anything like that. I think that I would want people to know that, you know, so you, we're women. <laughs> you know when you're in the office or in a club or on a train and somebody holds the door open for you, you know, in the core of your being, if that person is being sleazy and kind of looking at your behind as you pass through the door, or whether they're a nice person just holding the door out open for you. It's really easy to read that kind of behaviour. You know, we all know who the sort of sleazy guy in the office is. And it's not, um, it's, it's not to do with action, it's to do with intent, and you can read that. So I think it's really easy to tell with things like pronouns and words and making mistakes. It's very easy to tell when someone is wielding a pronoun to hurt someone and when they're doing a slip up because they're talking about somebody that they knew whose life has changed or whatever. And I still make pronoun mistakes, especially when I'm talking about the past. And I think people should know that there isn't a monitor <laughs> who's checking up on the language because language is complicated and fluctuating. And we've all said, where are my glasses when we mean where are my car keys and all that kind of thing. So if you're not being aggressive, on the whole, people can tell and will allow for mistakes. So that, I think, would initially let most people start talking where they would have been afraid. And I've really lived with that the last sort of six months or so of people almost too scared to to say anything because they're so scared that they're going to kind of get it wrong and I'm going to storm out and all of that kind of so it's very easy to interpret when someone's using language aggressively and when someone's making a mistake because they're a human being and also most trans people have no interest in being activists or aren't especially political people and they are, in my experience, on the whole, just sort of just Jan from accounts who wants to get on with her life and be unbothered. You know, they're, us- they're as likely, you know, people say with confidence, but I don't know any trans people. But you might. You might have been buying your kids wellies from a trans guy in the kids shoe shop or whatever for years. Um, and they just, I think, 
I mean, I can't, I'm not the voice of the trans community and nor would I want to be and nor should I assume that position. But in my experience, and I think this is really difficult for people who have any, trans people who have any profile on social media, is that they're sort of immediately called activists just if they express an opinion in a way that other people expressing opinions about themselves don't get that moniker as quickly. Um, So I think that's also worth bearing in mind that um, it's not like, there's not like this sort of, people talk about the trans lobby, like it's like a kind of group of wizards who meet on a high table every third Thursday of the month. And it's, it's people who have tried to connect because people around them or people they know are in pain. Um, and, and also, like... I think it's worth remembering that it's that they're actually people. I don't think that's often said out loud enough. I see people who I know, who I've worked with, whittling column after column after column out of debates around trans lives as if it's sort of the use of metaphor in poetry or something totally hypothetical. Trans people are people who are just trying to do normal life stuff and enjoy themselves and make connections and um I think that that they it's almost like the trans community becomes a sort of totally you know voodoo economics or something you know bitcoin like that they're just kind of it's just a turn that becomes bandied around by people as if there's not actual flesh and blood attached and I think that's really worth remembering like there were there were mistakes made and there was a lot of pain had and um a lot of learning and reading and crying to be done but i'm really proud that not only that i have a great relationship with my ex but also that i now um i'm i'm more confident at sort of discussing these things but also at um discussing and discussing them <laughs> yeah let, let me t- t- can I talk about your family now then as it is and and the kind of challenges of it because presumably you know it's not always mm. plain sailing and how you how you deal with that and like you say your son is verbal now you can talk to him about those things how does it go do you experience transphobia as as a as a sort of unusual family or a family that's slightly different to what a lot of people expect I don't um really because I think if people see the three of us together, they can usually... I look a lot like my son anyway. Um, identify me as a mother, but... Um, so they just sort of go with that. And But I, what, what's interesting is I sometimes if we're in town together or we've met in town, Brighton's quite kind of in the lanes, it's quite wiggly and cobbledy and stuff so I'll sometimes and it was especially when my son was in a buggy and I would walk behind for a bit you know dawdling or checking my phone and then you see people walking in the opposite direction staring and that kind of thing you know I've got on buses behind them when they were together or my ex was pushing the buggy and seen sort of the whole spectrum from sort of momentary confusion to over supportive smile to there's a particular kind of rage in a bloke that you see 
who has thought, ooh, tall, leggy, blonde, and then realised, and then is sort of angry on some level. And that's very upsetting. And I know that my ex has had experienced transphobia, went out and about with my son when they've been in playgrounds and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I know, you know, there's this sort of idea that Brighton is this sort of <laughs> rainbow-coloured Willy Wonka land of unfettered joy and acceptance and there's as much um, kickback against trans lives and LGBT plus lives here as there is anywhere and in some instances more because they feel like they're somewhere where it's somehow being forced on them. <laughs> so it's it's challenging and it, and it will be difficult as, as he grows but, but you're kind of are, do you feel equipped to deal with those challenges and or, or is it very daunting? I mean, any parent who says that they feel confidently says that they feel equipped to do anything to do with parenthood is only equipping themselves to fail. <laughs> uh, whether it's your sort of tonight's the night we're going to crack the, you know, sleeping or I found this radical new way to change a nappy with one hand. Um you're you're always going to <laughs> to be but I feel as equipped as I think I could and I feel emboldened I feel like I've been through all of this it can't not be for anything and and I've also had an extremely positive experience with my son's nursery who have really um walked a an unusual situation um which I think was new for them as well um with a real amazing amount of kindness and consideration just things like because it's changed because we've evolved over you know three years that my son's been going there so it's been you know it started off with you know um a, a discreet phone call about mother's day and what 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 where we're at with mother's day cards or you know when they're all painting and and you know and I've kept them informed as well so that they felt confident and you know just things like want you know finding out if there were other kids there who had same sex or same same sex families and things like that so it's been it's been a, a learning curve for us both and I felt very um safe and welcome there so I feel like at, if if it's difficult when my son goes to school next year I'll I'll know that it doesn't have to be like that because I've had a positive experience at the nursery just on that Alexandra do you both get mother's day cards is that how it works double the Mother's Day uh, situation? This year we did. I mean, it's so contentious, isn't it? The the word mother. And I definitely at the beginning felt extremely protective about it. But also, I think um, it's more to do with what it indicates to my son. I think I want, we both want my son to know that he has two loving parents. And a father would definitely not be appropriate. And there isn't a parent's day, <laughs> which I would, which would be my preferred thing. Because I find the kind of fluffy, fetishy, you know, motherhood, oh, why don't you have this one day a year to put your feet up and I'll load the dishwasher? And I'm like, oh, I really, I'm looking for more like 180 days a year. <laughs> um, I'm with you. So I'm not a fan anyway. But we, we've reached a, a point now where we, we've cards that are on Mother's Day that don't say mother on them. So, you know, okay. there's, there's, so 
I mean, you just got to have a bit of patience and imagination, don't you? <laughs> and you know, we we'll, we'll happily use the term if we're talking to my son that he's got he's in he's what we've said is he's in a two mum family. Like there are two dad families and there are two mum families. But my ex isn't called mummy. Um, so yeah, that's the sort of truce line that we're walking at what is she called if she's not called mummy oh it's a separate name it's not it's like a made-up word so i mean i wouldn't use it because then i don't want anyone in a playground no don't use it i don't don't want you to use it but you know what you've just said there just to finish patience and imagination i think are two really powerful words in this whole conversation patience maybe with people who don't necessarily feel fully equipped or understand a lot of the issues are just yeah. are taking their time to understand patience there is really important. And imagination goes back to what you said about who are we as women? Who are we as people? Having a much broader understanding of that, which yeah. is more universal and more kind, I suppose. And I do have patience because I think the minute that you um, think... Uh, oh, absolute fury at anyone who doesn't have a, an encyclopedic understanding of trans history, biology, terms, science, um, culture, all of that. If, if, if that's going to send you into a tailspin every time you encounter someone who isn't up to your specific standards, you're going to be exhausted and unhappy all the time. And also you're not ever going to reach a point of understanding with any of those people because they will feel more isolated and dig their heels in more. Whereas lots of people are coming from a position of, I just don't get it. I don't, I, it's for me, <laughs> it's a, I feel like sometimes I feel like I've tried to understand things like the Middle East. <laughs> and you can, you can see it from, you know, like with trans people, you can go back millennia, you can just go to post-war history, you could just go to like Clinton era and the minute you try to start talking about it, I sort of start to vibrate with terror that I'm going to upset somebody and I'm not going to understand their heritage and I'll have not read a certain key text. So I, I really get it. Like, it's one of those topics that is panicking. But, you know, if somebody does know stuff about the Middle East and wants to share it and talk to me, I want to understand it better and get more stuff right. But that's because I've approached it from knowing how little I know um, and that, I think that's that's important on both sides. Like I said before, it's it's also incredibly easy to tell. You know when you know who the predatory guy in the office is. You know when the person who's pretending they know everything and don't want to engage with it because they've just made up their mind and they're angry. And those people, I have no interest in talking to. I wish them love and light and they can go off into their lives, but I'm not going to try and... Um, tell those people they're wrong or or try to convince them. I just don't have any interest in them. Speaking of that, there are, as you mentioned in the book, columnists in, in Britain particularly who have, you know, written extensively about this in, in, I suppose, what they would call gender critical, what other people use the term turf. Have you lost friends over this? People that you previously were in contact with who just now see the way your, your life has gone and they don't want to know you? Yes, I haven't specifically had like a close friend who I, you know, fell out with and they were, they dug their heels in and said I was a terrible person. But I've lost sort of contacty, colleague -y friends just, and, and sort of in that way that social media, you know, you suddenly realise they're not following you or they're not communicating with you anymore. 
um, especially after this strange disjointed year that we've just had. And I and I've also chosen to step back from certain people. If you see someone clicking like on stuff that you feel is abusive to your family or would make your son unsafe at school or feel unsafe at school, then I'm not probably going to do my best to catch up with you once lockdown's over. And I'm also not going to feel guilty about that. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you and I suppose we just better talk about your book that you've uh, that you've got in the pipeline, a, f- a fiction book, a novel. Yeah. Oh, it's just completely different. I think I might have, I might actually, once I deliver it, do a word search and make sure that the word gender just isn't in it. <laughs> um, it's about two sisters who don't know that the other exists until their dad dies. And one is in the middle of Norway and one is just in suburban England and has to go and find her and tell her that they're sisters. And then they're in Norway in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> um, stuck for some time. Okay. So it's um, my editor said to me, it is um, frozen meets wild. <laughs> oh, I like it. Well, you write so beautifully. I'd, I'd literally read anything that, that you write. And I also want to mention you're going to be appearing at the West Cork Literary Festival as well. Is that right? Yes. I'm not just appearing at the West Cork Literary Festival, but also trying to find a way to cycle the Wild Atlantic Way in the next few years. So it's all part of my master plan to end up in Bantry for good. Um, but yes, I'm really looking forward to it. I spoke to them for Leaping. That's a great idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely besotted by that part of Ireland. I went there when things were still quite febrile and new and it was quite new news. Um, and just it, just the time that I spent there was so special. Um, so, yes. I'd love to join you cycling a bit of that Wild Atlantic Way. I, I'm a big fan of your work. And I, I think what you're doing here with this book, actually, I would really encourage all our listeners to read it, especially anyone who finds that this is a topic that they find it difficult to get their head around because it's so human, it's so real, it's so truthful and honest. And it's it's an experience that clearly has um, helped you in so many different ways. And and I know without being old, again, back to the rainbow scatter cushions, <laughs> you know, it's it's made you a, a bigger and better person, I think. All of these really difficult things that have happened to you in recent times. Thank it you. It feels like it's opened you up in a really gorgeous yeah. way. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's incredibly kind. Brilliant. Well, listen, we'll have you back on, Alexandra, and hopefully see you in person in Ireland um, at some point soon. And the best of luck with everything. Thank you. That's all we have time for. That was Alexandra Hemmonsley, and the book is called Somebody to Love. I really recommend it. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, Jennifer Ryan, and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, and I will talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.